Now, some years ago, a friend of mine who is a pastor in the UK, he shared an experience of what happened to him uh, one Sunday morning a few years ago. Uh, a dear old Christian lady who he, he knew quite well uh, came into his church one Sunday morning, and uh, she had lost the ability to walk well in old age. It wouldn't be long before she would be restricted to a wheelchair. And so she, she slowly hobbled into uh, my friend's church, hobbled through the entrance, and she saw my friend the pastor uh, just inside welcoming uh, those who were arriving. Uh, she saw my friend and she approached him and said, Reverend, Reverend, Do you know a place where I can get new legs? Do you know a place where I can get new legs? Bit of an eerie silence. It's not a question that you get asked every day. But then my friend did something that astonished those around him. He he turned to her, and with a warm smile, he said to her, Yes, yes. Yes, I know a place where you will get new legs. Uh, Legs that will never break down, legs that will never falter, legs that will never decay. They will be yours, I guarantee it. I wonder here this morning, what do we think of my friend's response? Some of us might be quite shocked. How can you promise Something like that. Here here is a a poor old lady struggling to come to terms with her ailing body, weakened, breaking down. How can you get her hopes up like that? Promising her new legs that will never break down again. Well, if we as Christians this morning are shocked by my friend's promise and confidence and statement... I think it's a very good thing that we're looking at our resurrection hope this morning. We're currently doing a series on the resurrection since Easter Sunday, and today we are looking at our resurrection hope. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for us who follow him in terms of our future hope? Because it may just be, if we're shocked at my friend's statement to that old lady, I can promise you, you will have new legs, that we are unwittingly buying into the same error that the Corinthians made, to whom Paul is writing in our passage this morning. There were many in this church who did not believe in bodily resurrection, being raised physically from the dead, never to die again. And Paul knew that this was a big problem for the church in Corinth. He's already told us, you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, back in verse 3, the gospel by which we are being saved as Christians, that God in the person of his son Jesus died on the cross for our sin, for all the ways in which we've wronged God and wronged one another, so that we might have the certain hope of forgiveness and new life. Through faith in him. And how do we know that that rescue worked? That Jesus' death was sufficient to do that? Because Jesus conquered the grave. Rising again to new physical life. Never to die again. But to deny that the dead can be raised as the Corinthians were doing. Well that is to deny that Jesus ever really rose from the dead. 
That is another way of saying Jesus is not a reliable savior. If death defeated him, if he remained dead, how can we be saved from death through faith in him? This denial of resurrection, it undermines our salvation and our hope in Christ. And Paul won't have it. We're going to take up his argument in verse 35 as he affirms that in Christ we do have the certain hope of resurrection life. We can look forward to, firstly, a new body. A new body. Come with me to verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? In one sense, that's an intriguing question, isn't it? you ever thought about what it will be like when you are raised from the dead? Strange questions like, well, you know, will I be the same age as when I died? Am I going to be reborn as a baby or a teenager? Am I going to have to go through acne and having a really squeaky voice all over again? What's my body going to be like? Uh, Will it be like this or will it be slim and athletic? That will be a first for me. I don't know. You know, we're not told. But just because we can't know everything about the nature of our resurrection body to come, that doesn't mean we can't know anything about it. Paul calls these resurrection deniers in Corinth fools. Fools for thinking that just because, as they observe in this life, we die physically, we break down, that must mean there cannot be a physical resurrection in the future. And that's foolish, firstly, because God's given us examples of life coming from that which is dead in the natural world in which we live. Coming to verse 36, Paul goes on to say, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Notice that word there, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I discovered this when I was a young boy. I told my mum, mum, one day, I, I want to grow some sunflowers. So if, I know we don't really have, I don't, we don't, do we have sunflowers in Malaysia? Maybe not. That, that's a sunflower, these glorious six-foot-tall flowers, great green stalks and massive buds, uh, glorious uh, sunflowers. And, and my next-door neighbor, he had some sunflowers, and I was very envious. Oh, those, are, those look beautiful. I want to grow my own sunflowers. So I told my mum I want to grow them. I didn't know that actually sunflowers, they start out very different. Mum took me down to the garden center, and she bought me a packet of, of sunflower seeds. And, and she opened up the packet, and she put them into my hand, and I looked at them, and they were these small, shriveled, lifeless little things. And I thought my mum my was playing a joke on me. This? This is really what you need to grow these glorious flowers, these tiny, lifeless little seeds? But lo and behold, as we took these seeds back home, We buried them in my back garden and watered them each day. They sprouted and they grew. They weren't as nice as those, but they grew into glorious, incredible sunflowers. Paul says in verse 37, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. If only these skeptics in Corinth would just open their eyes and see what God is already doing in nature, bringing life out of things which seem dead. It wouldn't be so hard to believe what God will do at the end of time. 
when he takes the seeds of our dead bodies, buried into the ground, and, and brings new life to them, gives us new physical bodies again. Not the same body, though. Paul makes that point in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. If God has already created many different kinds of body, both on the earth and in the heavens, well, why would it be so hard to accept he can create two different kinds of human body? The earthly body that we have now, and a resurrection body to come. In the light of these lessons from nature, Paul drives his point home. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Uh, Just as a, a seed is sown, just as our bodies will return to the earth one day, Well, so if a seed brings forth new life, so our bodies in Christ will experience the same. And it will be an incredible transformation. Uh, Paul gives us four contrasts to consider. Uh, Firstly, in verse 42, he's mentioned that our bodies are sown perishable. Our bodies now, as we experience them, are perishable. They have a limited shelf life. I don't need to tell you that. You know that your body is not designed to go on forever. You can see when I smile, the wrinkles around my eyes that are already developing. It's a sign of age. But not so, Paul tells us, with our resurrection body to come. That will be imperishable, free of decay. Verse 43, secondly, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Our bodies are sown in dishonor. Because I know that my body has not been used for the purpose for which God gave it. It's been a vehicle for sin. To my shame, I've used my eyes to lust, I've used my hands to harm, I've used my tongue to lie. My body has been a vessel for dishonor. But when it's raised, it will be raised in glory. It will be restored for its true purpose, to glorify God with a renewed ability to love him and others perfectly as I should. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's the third one in verse 44. Our bodies are weak. Personally, I've seen this so many times already in the life of my little son, Josiah. He's not even three years old yet, and yet he's already been in hospital three times. He was frail when he was first born. He was in an incubation unit in the intensive care ward for the first ten days of his life as he struggled to breathe. And just this past week, he's been back in hospital again with a a nasty form of the rotavirus. Our bodies are weak. But when they are raised, they will be, Paul says, powerful. No longer subject to the illness that is all too familiar to us in this life. Finally, Paul says, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, we we read natural body there, we think, oh, well, that's physical, right? And then we read spiritual body, we think, oh, well, that's non-physical then. No, that's not what Paul means here. Our eternal future is not going to be, as some TV adverts and general culture might suggest, a, a a bodiless existence. Nowhere where we're spirits floating on clouds or anything like that. 
No, it's true that those who have already died trusting in Christ are with him in spirit now. But that's not the end of the story for them, for those who have already died, or for us still living. One day we will be raised as Jesus was. He had a physical body like you and me. And after the cross, he was raised to new physical life. But his body wasn't the same in every way. We read in the gospel accounts, he transcended physical limitations at times. He was able to enter into a locked room in which his disciples were gathered. His body was physical. He was recognizable to the disciples from before, but it was transformed. It was glorified. And so for us who trust in him, we also have the promise of a future physical body transformed, glorified, spiritual, one that will never suffer dishonor, Weakness, never break or perish. And we know that that is true because Jesus rose from the dead. But it's not automatic. Just because Jesus did rise from the dead, that doesn't mean we are automatically secure in him. Uh, Paul gives us this sequence we should definitely bear in mind in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Adam Our ultimate parent came first, and like him, we are born into this world to live for a time. You see what Paul also says of Adam in verse 47? The first man, Adam, was from earth, a man of dust. It reminds me of what we say at our Anglican funeral services. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. You see, we, like Adam, will die one day. Because this body has been a vessel for sin, a body of dishonor. We know we don't delight to live God's way. We don't seek to love him and honor him as Lord. We delight to do our own things our own way, and we refuse to give God the place he deserves in our lives. And God warns us in his word, the wages for our rebellion, our sin, is death. And so in our fallen state, our bodies have become perishable, weak, dust we are, and so to dust we will return. And yet, thankfully, the wonderful news is a new Adam has come, a new representative for humanity who has begun a new pattern of life for all who would trust in him. Have a look again in verse 45. And Paul goes on to say, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the second part, the second man is from heaven, Jesus God made man, came from heaven, from his father's side to do his father's will, and that will was to love us, his enemies, by saving us for God's glory so that we might not face the penalty for our sin of death. And how did he do that? Well, by living the life that we failed to live in sin and then dying the death that we deserve on the cross. And so as Jesus, the second Adam, as he rose from the grave, as he defeated the curse of sin and death that we live under now in his own body, so he brings us the hope of new life. The question is, who do we belong to? Which pattern are we following? Verse 48 As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So which are we? Do we still belong to the dust like Adam? Are we still insisting on being the boss in sin, refusing to submit to Jesus as our risen Lord? The one who alone offers forgiveness and eternal life? 
Our friends, if we're in that situation today, I, I must warn you, there is no resurrection hope without Jesus because no one else has conquered death for our sakes. In him alone do we have the promise of life after death. Don't trust in anyone or anything else, yourself or outside of yourself, for eternal security. But for those who do belong to him, Paul says, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall experience resurrection life as Jesus did. But we're not fully there yet. Oh, through Christ, by his spirit, we have now been given new life, new relationship with God. But we're still waiting for the day when our flesh will be raised, never to die again. And so for us who are trusting in Christ, we need to be wary of those who suggest that our bodies are already imperishable as Christians. That as Christians, we aren't in any sense prone to disease or decay. That we can be guaranteed perfect health as well as wealth in this life now. I am personally convinced that the prosperity gospel, you can have wealth and health as a Christian in this life, it is a form of resurrection denial. Because, you see, it takes the reality of future resurrection, that hope that we have in Christ, and it drags it here into the presence before it's actually happened. You see, I know of one family who were assured that their daughter, sick with cancer, that she will be healed now. And she wasn't. And she died. And because her family were encouraged to root their resurrection hope in Christ in this life as if it was the next, their faith was broken. Because they were now convinced God doesn't keep his promises. Because they had been destroyed by a false hope in promises that God never made for us, his people, in this life. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious future hope to look forward to in Christ, a new body, to be raised like him in every way, never to die again. But it is not today. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we're going to spend some time in Romans 8 now as we move on to our second point, we are looking forward to a new body, but with that, we are looking forward to a new world. A new world. Just take a look at this picture. You see it clearly. Anyone want to guess where that is? I'll be very impressed if you get it right. Anyone want to guess where that is? Or maybe even the country that, it, uh, that, that uh, that's in. It's real? Sorry? No, it's not Canada. No, it's not Malaysia. It looks a bit like some places in Malaysia. It's not Malaysia. Brazil, no. We haven't even got the continent right yet. <laughs> it's Africa. It is Lake Bogoria in Kenya. Put your hand up if you've been to Lake Bogoria. It is one oh, okay, it is one of the most beautiful and least known tourist destinations in our world. It is an idyllic place of incredible natural beauty. This 18-mile-wide shimmering lake surrounded by hills and the rest of the Kenyan jungle. In the right season, flocks of up to two million pink flamingos line the lake shore 
It is a breathtaking view. I've been told, I've never been there, but I've been told, it just takes your breath away. If time and money were not an issue, then taking a long weekend, setting up a picnic by the lake shore and going for a swim, look, it could be, could be a really nice idea. But if you were to share that plan with one of the locals, they would look at you not with delight but horror. They would say you are crazy. And that is because Lake Begoria, for all its visual beauty, is actually one of the most dangerous places on the planet. It is one of the most dangerous natural places in the world. I mean, for a start, just generally, there is the temperature. It is very hot, even by Malaysian standards. You stay out in the sun too long, you will turn the color of one of those flamingos. (laughs) Then... There's the other wildlife around you. You're not the only ones there. there are, there's other wildlife. Cheetahs that prowl around. Not the, not the soft, cute, fluffy toy version that Josiah has at home. The real thing. Razor-sharp claws and teeth that can bear down on you at anything up to 75 miles an hour. There's the water. It looks so inviting. Like, oh, I'd love to take a swim in it. Of course, what you can't see is that that lake is both alkaline and hypersaline. It would be the equivalent of wading into really, really salty bleach. Not very good for your skin or your internal organs. Of course, you could just stay on the dry ground, set up a picnic, and just enjoy the view. But then there are the geothermal pockets of activity under the soil that are known to give way to boiling pools of muddy water. Not exactly a nice way to go. Ah, This is a very extreme example of the hostility of nature, but... It won't be news to us from our own possible experience that the natural world, as much as it is a place of extreme beauty, can be incredibly hostile to us as well. We enjoy the blessings that God still gives to us through the world that he created. We physically live off it each day. Water, food, our basic material needs. A beautiful place, a place of provision, but also a hostile place. A place that can be incredibly dangerous to us. And that is because creation has been corrupted. It is not as it once was. We're told in Romans 8 that it has been corrupted by our sin. The incredible statement is coming up here. Romans 8 verse 20. We're told, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God has subjected this world that we live in today to frustration. That's part of the price that we pay for our rebellion against him. This world is not as it once was. Our sin has the collateral damage of affecting the good order of the world around us. It is a far cry from the world that God first brought into being in Eden. A world that was depicted for us in Genesis 1 and 2 of harmony in which we as mankind loved and honored God as we should and enjoyed him. And so we loved and honored one another and creation submitted to our God-given rule of it. And yet now we live in a world of hostility as well as beauty. In our sin, we abuse it far more than we care for it, even though we should be caring for it. And the creation itself is unyielding. Natural disasters, global warming, the spread of terrifying disease. As Paul says in our next verse, it's a world in bondage to corruption. It is full of decay and danger and death. And yet there is hope. Because like us, creation itself looks forward to a resurrection day. 
It goes on to say in verse 21, I'll read the whole thing again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, God's intention has never been to do away with this creation entirely. When God first created the world in its great state, he declared it good, very good. And it was only when we in sin brought the curse of sin and death into our world that this creation was put into this bondage to corruption. If God did away with this world completely, then the curse of sin and death will have won. Corruption will be total. And yet in the resurrection of Christ, a very different victory is assured. This world that we know in bondage will one day be renewed. Interesting in Revelation, God says, I will make all things new. Not I will make all new things. I will make all things new. It will be this world, but renewed in the most incredible way. The suffering, disease, disaster, and death that we witness on a daily basis will be no more. The old order of things will have passed away. A renewed world fit for the eternity we will share with God. That is our resurrection hope. Not just for our bodies, but for the world in which we live. Do you think about that future? Is that what we dream about when we're bored in the office? Is that what we fixate on, what we draw our comfort from in the here and now? Because personally, I can tell you, for me, I know a danger constantly is that I care more about tomorrow than my ultimate tomorrow in Christ. I stress out over my condition and my situation in the here and the now. I worry because I think I'm somehow going to miss out in this life. I'm not going to get to travel and experience all the things that I see other people traveling to and experiencing. I might not get to Lake Bogoria. I might not get to taste real French wine in the south of France or to bungee jump off a bridge in New Zealand. Of course, those things are quite trivial, really, in the light of the reality of life. I know some of us, no doubt, here today struggle with far deeper and more meaningful longings. A desire to be married... And there are interested parties, but they don't share our love for Jesus. A desire to get a promotion at work. And yet we know that to do that, our boss expects us to compromise our love for Christ. A desire for reconciliation with family members now, but we know that to be accepted back by them on their terms, it would mean turning our back on Jesus as Lord. And friends... When we're struggling with such deep longings as well as the more trivial ones, when we're broken by the fear that these things might not come to pass, and when we're tempted to compromise our love for Christ to get these things, remember, you have a glorious future in Christ. One that is worth every sacrifice, as painful as they are in the present time. Put him first keep him first because no matter what we are called to give up it will be worth it our future in him will be far greater and we see that as we come back with Paul to 1 Corinthians 15 just read with me from verse 54 when the perishable puts on the imperishable 
and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory for our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there are many fleeting comforts in this life that we might long for, but they are fleeting. They are not lasting. They will pass away. This is where we should be rooting our joy and our comfort, whatever our situation today. Giving thanks to God that through the love of his son, we can know the certain hope of victory, even in the face of death. I don't know, some of you may know uh, Auntie Shireen, who attended our evening service, uh, Smack 2. And I was by her bedside at hospital this past Thursday. And she died from cancer on Friday. And we are rightly grieving with her family at this time in their loss. And yet even as we grieve and they grieve, we are able to take comfort in the power of these words. I think it's often only when we face those kinds of situations that we truly appreciate them. What Paul writes here. Death itself will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because Auntie Shireen belonged to the one who took death's sting for her, who died for her sin in her place on the cross and defeated death for her by rising again to everlasting life. So that for Auntie Shireen and for all who trust in Christ as Lord, death is no longer an executioner. It's no longer a one-way road to judgment. No, for her, it was merely a stop on the road to glory. And she is with her Lord now, and one day she will be raised imperishable along with all who trust in her, never to suffer, to break down, to fear death, or any loss in life ever again. And in the light of that incredible victory to come, which is to comfort us and to shape us, we have a new priority now as we wait. We have a new priority. Have a look in verse 58 as we close. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now Paul says here, notice first of all, be steadfast, immovable, abounding. In the work of the Lord. To be steadfast, immovable, it's to remain faithful to the truth that Jesus, as God's Son, did rise from the dead. As Andy mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're not Christians who believe in Jesus' resurrection in our hearts or anything along those lines. We believe he physically rose from the dead and that our future security is bound up in his resurrection. Because it shows he is God's promised savior for our world and that in him we do have victory over death. And that truth that Christ is raised physically, never to die again, that was mocked in Paul's day. The mocking of the resurrection in our world, it is nothing new. See what, how some of the crowd responded when he was preaching to the Areopagus in Athens. Acts 17.32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And, of course, it's as often today as it was then. It's what the prominent atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, said at the end of one of his debates. 
It all quite really comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. It has a fundamental incompatibility with the sophisticated scientist. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe in which we live. The resurrection of Jesus is continually mocked. We may well know that, having shared it with our friends, our family. But we know, like Paul, as Christians, it is worthy of our defense, even if we are ridiculed and ostracized for it. It is our certain hope of everlasting life with God in the face of the corruption and death that we see in the world today. Brothers and sisters, we have the words of eternal life. How could we not defend them? And how could we not, as we defend them, share them? And speak out into the lives of those who are facing the fear of death. We are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not just applying to pastors or full-time evangelists or small group leaders. We all as Christians have a role to play in this great commission. Testifying to the truth that Jesus is risen and we can have new life in him. And next week we will be looking more closely at what it means to live now in the light of our resurrection hope. But let me just ask you as we close, does your resurrection hope in Jesus bear at all on the big decisions you make in the here and now? Now, I was really encouraged when a Christian friend of mine shared with me uh, that he he told me, I'm I'm considering moving to a a new town. Uh, I've got a job offer, but it means uprooting uh, the family. It means moving to a new place that I don't really know. Uh, and what do people normally think about when they're making that kind of big, life-changing decision? Well, they consider, well, what are the local schools going to be like for my kids in that new place? What's the crime rate? What are the house prices? What about the local entertainment? What will life be like there in the here and now if I move there? Now, those are all good considerations. You know what my friend told me was his top priority when considering moving to that new place? It was to make sure that there was a local church in that town that knew and loved Jesus. And that was doing the work of his gospel. He knew that he wasn't a pastor. He didn't have the time or the talents to start a new ministry where one wasn't already happening. And so he wanted to make sure, above all, that he could be a part of one wherever he moved with his family. Friends, there is a man who is prizing his resurrection hope in Christ. Who is living for that day over and against even the priorities of the here and now. Because he agrees with Paul, our labor in the Lord is not in vain, whether it be in the face of life or death. Whatever sacrifice we need to make to serve Jesus and his gospel, it will be worth it as it gives way to an eternal inheritance And I pray that all of us here today will on that final day hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And to do that, we must keep on fixing our hearts, not on tomorrow, but our ultimate tomorrow. Even as our minds and our bodies break down as we weather the sufferings of this life, whether we are young or old, What a joy it was for my friend to say with absolute integrity and assurance and confidence to that dear old lady who came into his church, yes, 
There is a place where you can have new legs, a new body that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And he could have gone on to say, and there is a new world. And you will never suffer, break down, or die again. You will be reconciled in every way to the God that you were made to know and delight in for all eternity. That is your resurrection hope in Christ. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But if we are Christ, we will be. We will bear his image. We will receive an imperishable body that just like his own will never experience suffering and pain and death again. Instead, we will rejoice in the presence of our God forever. And brothers and sisters, that is a future worth waiting for. And more importantly, that is a future worth living for. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done what we could never do in our sin. In your Son, who came and lived the life we have failed to live and died the death we deserved, and then conquered sin and death, won that victory for us in his resurrection. Thank you that in that hope, by faith in him we are saved. We have this wonderful, eternal future with you to look forward to. Father, pray you would help us as your people here this morning to keep an eternal perspective, to be dreaming and looking forward as you would have us do to that new body, that new world, and so not rooting so much meaning and significance or contentment in the things of this life. Help us rather to see, as Paul does, the victory of Christ each day, and so to be steadfast immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.